that's just sort of the reason why I like Africa as a whole. The demographics are phenomenal there, phenomenal economic growth, and really, really bright future for the continent as a whole. I want to be there to ride the wave and to take advantage of the opportunities that are present there. Welcome to the Conservative Curious Podcast, where we uncover niche thinkers at the intersection of philosophy, tech, and culture. I'm your host, Jessica Dang, alongside my friend and co-host, Ani Pai. In this episode, we talk to Sean Pauly, an American who started a bank in Rwanda called Seshat Bank. We talk about Rwanda's long-term vision of being the Singapore of Africa, China's influence on the African continent, and why he thinks there are big opportunities for fellow American investors. I was looking at the New York Times, and you know, they have a world page with the world news, I clicked on Africa and pretty much every article that I scrolled down, the common word was corruption. So I was like, oh boy, this is going to be an interesting episode with Sean because you're investing in Africa. You have, you've started companies there, but when you look up news about Africa, all you see are stories about corruption and severing ties and all these wars that they're getting into, like with Somalia and all that. So I was wondering if you could give us a background of why you even started thinking about doing business in Africa in the first place. I started thinking about Africa a while ago, a little bit before I started my first company in Uganda, Nekbet Resources. And Nekbet Resources is a maize milling and trading company. The whole idea behind that is to take advantage of arbitrage opportunities that arise due to climate change. And basically the best place for that just happened to be Uganda. But while I was in Uganda itself and really just some of the opportunities that are present there in Uganda and in East Africa as a whole, uh, just absolutely blew me away. Population growth there is massive. You're looking at seven kids per woman in uh, Uganda and Rwanda. Very, very young countries. Median age is 15 in Uganda, 17 in Rwanda. Very, very, very rapid GDP and economic growth. Massive investments in infrastructure. Absolutely incredible place to be if you want to be in a rapidly, rapidly growing ecosystem. That's just sort of the reason why I like Africa as a whole. The demographics are phenomenal there phenomenal economic growth and really, really bright future for the continent as a whole. I want to be there to ride the wave and to take advantage of the opportunities that are present there. Right. But for all of the opportunity that's there, I mean, I would still think that corruption is probably the biggest deterrent for any potential investor. No? You know, corruption is fairly widespread throughout the continent. There are some places that don't really have quite as much Rwanda, for instance, has extraordinarily, extraordinarily little corruption, and that has a lot to do with the uh, policies of President Paul Kagame. Rwanda is basically trying to turn itself into the Singapore of Africa. So they've been copying a lot of Singaporean policies and Singaporean laws, just trying to implement basically a really, really forward-looking government system there and trying to eliminate as many of the bad things as possible. It seems like their number one issue or 
it seems like their problems really stem from bad governance. Is that fair to say? Uh, in, in some countries, yes. Um, so for instance, if you look at Nigeria, bad governance is certainly the reason why they are as poor as they are. If you look at southern Nigeria, southern Nigeria has phenomenal uh, river and ocean access, fantastic access to minerals and metals and energy. It has all of the ingredients right there for industrialization, but it has not industrialized due to the extraordinarily poor governance that is in place in Nigeria. But if you look at a country like Rwanda, for instance, the main problem that Rwanda has is that it's landlocked. It's just incredibly expensive to ship anything in from the coast. And that's not really something the governance can fix. You know, that's just the curse of geography. But, you know, governance quality varies significantly country to country. So uh, Botswana is fairly high. Rwanda is fairly high. Nigeria, Kenya, places like that are fairly low on it. Um, the individual problems vary country to country. But I would say that improving governance quality would be one of the easiest ways to address poverty and to improve economic growth over there. You know, people say Africa, right? And it's much like when people say China and China itself is like probably the most diverse place on earth, right? With all its different type of people, with, uh, with all the different spoken languages, the tribes, the cultures. And so Africa is very much the same, right? How can people kind of understand that the cultures in South Africa versus Kenya versus other parts of the continent are really different? Like, do you have any thoughts there on like how people can best understand the differences? <laughs> I mean, without going into a big history lesson about the Bantu migrations and, you know, all of the colonial era and all of that stuff, the best thing to understand is basically just uh, you can broadly split Africa up into certain geographic regions. So North Africa. So you look at, you know, the states around the Mediterranean. Those are all fairly Arab. You look at East Africa. It's all predominantly Bantu and Nilotic cultures. Very, very different from anything in West Africa. West Africa has been dominated historically by, you know, like the Songhai and um, Sokoto Caliphate and groups like that. Basically, West Africa had fairly large centralized empires historically. And then South Africa has the um, prevalence of the Dutch colonial settlement and English colonial settlement way back when. All of the different regions each have their own culture, and they're all fairly different from one another. It's so funny because before I got onto our recording, I looked up a map of Africa and tried to find Rwanda on it, and it's much smaller than I thought. It's like what you said, it's this tiny landlocked country, and you're starting a bank there, so I'm like, obviously something is going on there that Sean knows that the rest of us doesn't know. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of potential in Africa on the whole in terms of natural resources and in places like Rwanda that are focusing on services and what, like telecommunications and all that. From what you've told us before, investors globally are not really tapping into it, except maybe China, right? So Chinese um, investment, well, kind of a misnomer there, but um, Chinese financial involvement in Africa largely takes the form of concessional loans. So if you look at a company like Huawei, Huawei is very, very involved in setting up the uh, telecom networks in Africa and working with companies like MTN and the local carriers. What Huawei does is they provide loans to these companies and they say, we will finance your purchase of our goods. And they basically just sell them their goods on credit. Western companies are not willing to do that. And so, you know, it's a fairly easy choice for these telecom companies to make. You go with the company that's actually going to provide the best terms and best credit for you. 
If you look at government infrastructure development, a lot of that, again, takes the form of concessional loans from Chinese construction companies that tend to be state-owned. As far as tech investment goes, the U.S., I would actually say, is probably one of the larger tech investors in Africa. The problem, though, is that American tech investment tends to focus on a few areas that, well, they don't really look outside of mobile money or uh, pay-as-you-go solar. Those tend to be the two big, big hot areas for American tech investors in Africa. They don't really look beyond that. They don't tend to look at other arrangements. There are some local funds as well. So there's actually a good number of Nigerian funds that are popping up now. And those have a much, much broader range of investments. So there was recently one that um, was setting up like a online car sales in Nigeria, things of that nature. But yeah, as far as foreign tech investment goes, it's largely limited to the mobile money and pay-as-you-go solar. And as far as large-scale infrastructure projects go, that's largely Chinese concessional lending. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I know that in the case of a lot of the investment being you know, very insular, very endogenous, it's like that also allows a very unique culture to spawn in. That's something that, you know, we've talked about before of like, you know, the culture in Africa, when you think about it is there's not many places in the world anymore where it's like not westernized, right? When you actually can go to a place and it's not, you know, the cafes look the same, the hotels look the same, the people all look the same, they act the same way, same clothes, same fashion, same clubs, bars, Airbnbs. And so in this case, though, it was always very striking when like I have a few friends who do business in Africa and across the continent. It's like every country you go almost is like it has its own traditions and like its own very extensive history. And so what do you think about that? How does the culture impact like uh, the process of you setting this up? And, you know. Yeah. So the culture does make some things a little bit more difficult and does change a few things. It means that every country and in some countries, every region that you go into, you're going to need separate marketing teams and you're going to need a different go to market strategy. You don't have the large internal market like you do in the US or China. You're targeting 54 separate markets. You're going to have to spend a lot of time hiring, developing local talent, and bringing them up to um, executive level fairly quickly just to expand outside of your initial country set. Um, that that would be the big thing there. There are some countries where I think people are more amenable to the sort of Western way of doing business. In Uganda and Kenya, for instance, the people there tend to, well, they, they've got a lot of hustle. So uh, if you want a good salesman, it's hard to go wrong hiring a Ugandan or Kenyan for that kind of thing. <laughs> you shared this article with us about Rwanda being the Singapore of Africa and how their president, Paul Kagame, took inspiration from Singapore. I'm just wondering, why didn't he look to be like the America of Africa? Like, why not a democracy, but an autocracy? Well, the United States is good at a lot of things, but the uh, government system is lacking in a whole lot of ways as well. I don't really think many people would look at the United States and say, the US government has a whole lot of state capacity. It's very good at everything it does. Whereas people do look at the government of Singapore and say, well, you know what? They actually know what they're doing. They're doing a really good job. Those are not words I would ever use to describe the federal government of the U.S. Well, I was going to say with kind of what you said, Jess, like in these developing countries, I don't think, Sean, maybe you can correct me. I don't think I've heard a single time where people nowadays look to copy the U.S. in terms of like the political structure, right? It's very much like Singapore. It's, it's with some people, it's like China, right? And all the literature I've read and 
political science recently or political philosophy, it's like never once do people look across the pond and they're like, huh, like, why don't we become the next America? It's always how do we become the next Singapore? How do we become the next China? How do we become the next, you know, Indonesia in some cases? Like, you know, mm-hmm. countries where you go and, and things change, right? You go to Shanghai, two days later, there's like six more skyscrapers and, you know, all these hospitals that are now forming. And so I wonder, Sean, why do you think that is in the broader sense with Africa? Like there is a lot, you know, we talked about Chinese interests, but like there's a lot more political developments happening. Yeah. So um, that actually brings up a really interesting question. So if you look at, you know, globally, the Latin American countries are generally modeled after the United States. The African countries themselves and their political systems are generally modeled after whichever colonial power was occupying and colonizing the country. So if you look at Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, Sudan, Egypt, places like that, those are generally modeled after the British parliamentary system. If you look at Francophone West Africa, again, it's modeled after the French. Now you have some countries that have broken loose from that, such as Rwanda, notably, that are copying the, uh, well, copying Singapore in its case. But in general, the countries tend to, uh, the countries and their political systems tend to copy whichever country happened to colonize them. So if you look at like Kenya, for instance, and Nigeria, the governments there are basically still the same. They're not really all that different from the colonial governments back in, you know, the 1930s, 1940s. They basically just swapped out a white face for black ones. It's still the same structure that was in place back then. And the British and French largely just copied their home system and implemented it there. And Rwanda was under Belgian rule, but not very long. Yeah. So Rwanda was first a German colony, then it was a Belgian one. And in both cases, the colonizers were not really all that active there. And then in the 1960s, Rwanda became independent. And there was pretty significant discrimination against the Tutsis up until 1994 when the Rwandan genocide occurred. Then the RPF came into power and basically reformed the country at that point. Traveling as you have throughout Africa... I'm wondering if you've come across instances where colonization has been a positive influence in the country standing in Africa today, like from the standpoint that maybe it might not have been good back then, but throughout the country's timeline has turned out to be positive because, as you were saying, it might have created laws or systems or influenced culture in a way that is now amenable to doing business with the West? I can think of quite a few countries where it's had a very negative impact. But as far as countries where it's had a positive impact, maybe Mauritius, but that would probably be the only one. So if you're looking at countries like Nigeria, Nigeria is basically just, you know, you throw 30 ethnic groups together and call it a country that doesn't suddenly make it a country. Congo just happens to be all of the people who live along the Congo River. Rwanda actually was a kingdom prior to the colonial era. It was the uh, kingdom of Rwanda. Uh, Uganda was a bunch of kingdoms that basically got mushed together with the kingdom of Uganda forming the centerpiece of it. It's very difficult for me to think of a country where colonialism had a positive impact. With Paul Kagame being in power for so long, isn't that going to turn at some point? I mean, Power eventually corrupts. Well, Jess, wait, let me say one thing to that, which is that that's right. I agree. And I think the other thing that, you know, this is something that I uh, looked at pretty extensively when I was in school, like, is it 
political people that kind of ruined the country? Or is it like, is there something actually that's more natural to a geography that, you know, can cause all these issues? And there's this term called the Dutch disease, which is that a country that is like laden with huge amounts of natural resources typically ends up in a, well, ends up in a state like, you know, what we saw in Africa for the last 50 years, right? Just this incredible place of strife, of violence, of corruption. And because when you have all those natural resources over time, you were an easy target, right? Like I think about what happened in the dawn of slavery, where many people don't know that actually it was, so you had slave traders come into Africa, but it was tribes themselves that would take other Africans and sell them into slavery. Like it wasn't in the way that people in the West think, but like, you know, Americans went or Europeans went deep into Africa and ripped everyone out of their home. It was like a it was actually a very sophisticated coordination problem of tribes working with Europeans to get out other African tribes into slavery. And so I think about that with respect to the power we see, which is like, is it really Kagame or is it like these natural resources, qualities of a nation, the cultural problems that stem from you know, 30 different types of people being in the same place that lead to all these issues? I don't know. I so um I generally tend to view uh countries more as sets of institutions than sets of leaders but there are certainly leaders who can change things and turn things around if you're a subscriber of the great man theory of history Paul Kagame is certainly someone to look into on that since he has uh, single-handedly reformed how Rwanda works and Rwandan government itself Whereas in Nigeria, for instance, I don't know that anyone who was elected president would actually be able to reform it substantially enough to uh, make a big difference in Nigeria. The situation in which Paul Kagame rose to power, where uh, it was very unique, there was essentially a vacuum in which he came to power and he was able to implement his views. It's very difficult for me to see any other vacuums merging, and it's very difficult for me to imagine a situation in which they would emerge in most other uh, African states. They made this joke with China, right, that China entered the WTO, that eventually China, after hitting this GDP per capita of like, let's say 5,000 per person, that they would become democratic because everyone, you know, when they make enough money, they become a democracy. And in Africa, too, it's not looking like that, is it? Like, it's not looking like it's going to be a democratic stronghold. Not to say that people should immediately think that's the best option, right, that, that it has to look a lot like America, but it's pretty strange that people have gotten it so wrong that they thought the richer they are, the more democratic they'll be. In fact, it's really going the opposite, right? It's becoming way more autocratic, way more of an oligarchy. I wouldn't really say that. So if you compare where the continent is now compared to 30 years ago, at the end of the Cold War, Africa is wealthier now than it was then. It's also significantly more democratic than it was at that point in time. If you look at the Cold War era, it was just dictatorships everywhere on the continent. There was Moy in Kenya. There was the communists in Ethiopia. There was military dictatorships in Nigeria. Whereas now, dictatorship is actually something unusual, or it's 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 unusual in Africa relative to uh, democracy. You know, there are many flawed democracies, of course, but it's uh, still significantly more democratic than it was even 30 years ago. I understand that. No, I'm not saying that, you know, there's no democracy, but just like people have gone wrong, essentially how fast it was meant to be. And and maybe the Cold War comparison is a bit off. But I think that if you look at it in the 90s, right, like we thought, oh, well, trade, like trade will eventually solve these issues, right? But in this case, I don't see that the next 20 years will make a lot more of these countries copy American style democracy. Like, in fact, more on the opposite that as I see what happens here, they're like, oh, you know, maybe we should copy uh, and Australia is doing this, right? Australia 
a kind of a very different example, still a developed country, but they had a few choices in the past decade or two decades to be like way more American or way more Chinese. And if you look at the trade and you look at like what they're trying to do, it's becoming more and more Chinese, right? It's like surveillance state, like really strong emphasis on state power, trying to increase state capacity and all those things. And so I wonder, like, do you think that this trend of democracy in Africa will actually continue? No, I definitely think it will uh, continue to become more democratic. If you look at countries like uh, Ethiopia, Kenya, Nigeria, they tend to be getting significantly more democratic over time, even right now. And many of the last dictatorships on the continent are, uh, they're loosening their grasp on power as time goes on. I'm, I'm fairly optimistic for, uh, for democracy in Africa. You know, it seems like China is moving in fast on Africa and the U.S. is not. And maybe that'll influence what the future of the governance there is going to look like. When you look at African states, the more democratic ones uh, tend to favor China in their dealings relative to the U.S. because they need infrastructure loans, which China provides. The more autocratic ones don't need that. They don't need to rely on the people's well-being and support. So they tend more towards the U.S., which is kind of an interesting little thing that the more democratic ones trend towards China or tend to favor China. If you're an American and you go into Rwanda, what was your learning curve and what do most Westerners or Americans, what should they expect? So Rwanda actually has uh, probably one of the easiest <laughs> learning curves anywhere. You know, if uh, you go there and you say, I want to set up a restaurant or something like that, you can go in Day one, you can go in, you can get your company incorporated. The next day, you can go and get your work visa. And then, you know, you just need to find a place to rent out for your restaurant or whatever, and you can be up and running quickly. For a bank, obviously, it's quite a bit more complicated. It's a much more regulated sector. But for that, it's mostly just spending a whole lot of time with the regulators and with the um, business community in Rwanda and trying to work out what they actually need and what they actually want. That's really it. The whole thing is you just need to go there and just spend a little bit of time there and you'll pick up the culture pretty quickly. People don't like to trust people that they don't meet in person. They like to look you in the face to you know, judge who you are, how you carry yourself, all of that. They like to hear how you say everything in person. They need to know who you're friends with, You know, do reference checks. <clears throat> it's a fairly low trust society compared to the US. How do you see the future of Africa? Do you see it developing unevenly? Very unevenly, yes. Very, very unevenly. So there are certain areas that um, just by virtue of geography and by uh, virtue of what they have there, I think are going to be very, very difficult to develop. So if you look at Congo, for instance, it is extremely, extremely difficult to get anything into or out of that country. A large part of that is just nature. And basically the only hope that they have is of essentially transitioning over to a service-based economy similar to what Rwanda is doing. But most of those countries do not actually have the government in place to implement something like that. Rwanda does have the government to switch over to a service-based economy, but a lot of the uh, inland ones do not. Now, the coastal ones, so if you look at Kenya, Nigeria, Tanzania, places like that, manufacturing is booming in a lot of those countries right now. And I foresee a pretty bright future for them as manufacturing hubs. They tend to be fairly low cost relative to the Asian countries. So you can get a lot of labor-intense manufacturing done there. In addition, of course, food processing, things of that nature. All you need to do is just bring in the stuff from inland Africa to the coast, and then you can process it there and export up to Europe or Asia or America or wherever. 
it's going to be very lumpy development. Some areas are going to be much, much, much wealthier than others. No, I was going to say that's funny you say that because that means the development is, to me, as someone who, you know, my background's in economics and just looking at the different areas, like the way that Africa is forming is actually the way like certain, you know, I think about like China during uh, Deng Xiaoping when, you know, they're making the special economic zones and they are mass moving people, right? So they're moving people across China into the cities and people are like forced to leave their ancestral homes, right? And these areas that are far away from the cities to go to Shanghai and Beijing and Shenzhen and all those places. And I even see that with Africa. And although it's not forced yet, it is this very clear mass migration that is happening, not just with the refugee crisis, but, you know, in general, like this new wealth that people are seeing in other parts of the continent are really making people move to these places. And it's on a scale that we've never seen before, right? It's a very, very good time to be in the city construction business in Africa right now, or to be in the uh, concrete business. Urbanization rates in Africa are sky high across the board. In basically any country, you have people moving from the rural areas into the cities. So it's moving in the right direction. I would say that, yeah. But not evenly. No, no. Um, So again, yeah, some inland countries are going to be left behind, but... uh, there are some inland countries that are going to continue to do fairly well. So, for instance, Uganda, I think, has a very, very bright future as an agricultural hotspot. Rwanda has an extremely, extremely competent government and is rapidly switching over to a services-based economy. It also has massive amounts of foreign investment coming in. There's some light manufacturing going on there. There's a smartphone factory there. There's some recycling plants for electronics. There's some pharmaceuticals, things of that nature there. But the big focus is on developing services and high-value agriculture. The government's doing a whole lot to push that. So couldn't Congo just replicate that formula? Congo could never replicate that formula, no. No, it's a, it's a difficult formula to replicate. Congo could not replicate any formula. The formula is autocracy and free market capitalism, right? The formula is basically competent government plus market economy. And that's, that's it. So, and copy, copy what works elsewhere. So they're doing things in Rwanda, like they're copying e-Estonia. So land titles are now available entirely online. So if I'm looking at lending money to someone or mortgaging a property, I can see all of the properties that this person owns. If they have any mortgages on their other properties, I can see all of that information very easily. I can see all of the government's plans for the next five years, or like the city of Kigali's plans. I can see all of those laid out for the next five years. Planning and all of that is very, very easy in Rwanda. Uh, it's just competent government and market economy. That's the secret there. We had Dryden Brown on the show earlier, and you know we were talking about the rise of charter cities. And I know, Sean, that's something we've spoken about at length. And you can actually still pursue statecraft. You can still do a lot of very interesting things in building countries and reshaping governance. Like These are things that everyone has a joke, right? Like, born too late to colonize the earth, born too early to explore the universe. When I think that that's actually maybe opposite or even it's the right time to explore the universe and it's also the right time to keep exploring the earth. What do you think about the charter city phenomenon with what you've been seeing in Africa? And do you think you could imagine combining your enterprise and you know all the stuff you want to do in Africa in the future with a charter city? Or do you feel like those two might be exclusive in some way? No, no, they're not exclusive. They actually work very well together. I'm very fond of the charter cities movement and of any movement towards improving the quality of governance and um, experimental governance as well. 
there's a lot of room for improvement across the board in Africa when it comes to financial regulations and when it comes to how banks and uh, other financial institutions are regulated. And I would absolutely be willing to set up in a charter city with a different legal environment. I feel like the next time you go to Rwanda, you should make a video or something. You could be the Anthony Bourdain of doing business in Africa. <laughs> this is something that I'm sure everyone has seen who's interested. It's the Vice one about cowboy capitalists. It's two white guys, I think, and I forgot where in Africa they are. But essentially, they're talking about exactly what Sean is saying about this dynamism and this like exploding scene in business and capitalism and the changing nature of governance. And so they're just driving around the continent, like shipping goods and essentially making like a, what they call like an import expert business. And I found that phrase very funny because uh, even some of the people I went to school with, whose you know parents were, let's say, in very unsavory businesses, they would just call it import exporting. So I always find that very funny. Like there's so much opportunity, but at the same time, it's like you're taking like obscene levels of risk, right? It's almost like you wake up every day and there's like this sense of adrenaline that is exciting to people. You know, they just aren't used to that in the West anymore. I had a friend, I went down to Argentina and obviously it's it's developed, but it was still low barriers to entry. He was working on a startup where they were just basically putting the maps of the bus routes in one place online because people in Latin America use the bus a lot. So it was just something simple like that, but it changed the way that people can access this information so they know what tickets to buy to go where. And I was like, whoa, it's so simple, and yet it didn't exist. And I'm sure in Africa, it's such a wild, wild west in that way that you really, like the world is your oyster. There's a lot of opportunities in digitizing virtually anything over there. Bus routes themselves, well, to use your example, you can't really do that over there. Matatus in East Africa don't really follow any set route. A matatu is basically a van, so they have various points where they all gather and you say, okay, I want to go to this location. And they say, okay, I'm going to that location or no, I'm not going to that location. And then you just hop in one that is going to that location and you pay whatever the fee happens to be for that. And then you just ride along until you get to that location. And that's it. There's no set route. There's no set timetables. You know, I went to Moscow back in 2007 or 2008 and basically, Moscow operated with Uber without it being Uber. I was at a museum and I needed a taxi back to my hotel. And the person at the museum was like, you just stand on the side of the road and just stick your arm in the air. And if some motorist wants to stop by and give you a ride, they'll tell you how much it is. And, and I was like, is that safe? And they're like, yeah, we all do it. Yeah, there's a, well, there's something similar to that with the Bodas. So Bodas are motorbikes, basically, that have an extended backseat. So the driver and rider can sit on them. And it's a dirt cheap way of getting from A to B. There's a company that set up a way of basically doing the Uber of Bodas, Safe Boda. But there's a whole lot of issues with implementing basically the cashless model that set up. And that mainly has to do with the drivers themselves and how they manage their cash flow. With things like that in these underdeveloped places or undeveloped nations, even when I was in Russia, I was hesitant just having like a 1980s idea of what if some ex-KGB, like, I don't know, like tying me up in a chair, like who knows? And you think about Africa or all these other nations, would you really hop on the back of a motorbike of a stranger? 
And that has to do with the low trust society and not having these institutions and, and things in place. Like when you're used to trust, it permeates your society, but you don't even know it exists until it's not there. It's like you, you're drowning almost in a way. The funny thing is, is when I was in Russia, I was hesitant to jump into a stranger's car, but I was in the same situation in New York, trying to get down Lexington Avenue one morning, a rainy morning, no taxis, and a car pulled over and said, hey, I'm going down Lexington, you can just hop in my car. And I didn't have a second thought about it. I was just like, oh, thanks, you know, and just hopped in the car. And this was also pre-Uber. Um, but Sean, how long do you usually stay there when you go? Well, when I stay there, I stay there for quite a long time. My last trip, I was there for two years. So when I go, I tend to stay. I don't really leave once I'm there. It's kind of a pain to get back to the U.S. So like when I fly over there, my first trip, it took me 19 hours in the air, spread out over three days. So it's kind of a pain to come back to America from there. But once you're over there, it's really nice. What's the route from New Hampshire? So you go from New Hampshire to where? So you go from Boston to Amsterdam to Nairobi to either Kigali or Entebbe. Or you can fly from Boston to Qatar or Dubai and then fly direct from there. Okay, well, I think that's probably a reason why people aren't doing business there. It's kind of like really hard to get to. Probably. Well, hopefully SpaceX fixes that once they get the um, point-to-point travel down. Who knows, maybe SpaceX's point-to-point travel may just open the floodgates. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked this episode. If you enjoyed it, let us know by giving us a five-star rating or leaving us a review. Be sure to follow Sean on Twitter to keep up with his commentary about Africa and much more. His Twitter handle is at Sean underscore Polly. That's P-A-W-L-E-Y. And don't forget to follow us too. Until next time, stay curious.